If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12. As we continue to make our way through the book of Romans, we come this morning to Romans 12, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 21. This comes on the heels of what Pastor Ben preached on last week, uh, talking about uh, the gifts that the, we've been given, the, the uh, spiritual gifts we've been given in the body of Christ. And uh, now Paul continues with a whole series of, of uh, exhortations, instructions, commands. And uh, before I read, I invite you to, to bow with me as you ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Lord God, we, we come before your throne this morning and we come together under the authority of your word and pray, O oh Lord, that you would speak to us. We pray, O oh Lord, that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts and work in our hearts to cultivate them, to make them uh, fruitful and fertile ground to receive your word this morning. May the truths of this text be planted deep in us. And may they bear fruit of abundant transformation and change that would be for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Apostle Paul <clears throat> says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. <clears throat> Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You may be seated. <clears throat> In a letter to a friend, Tolkien once wrote, No man can estimate what is really happening at the present all we do know is that evil labors with vast power and perpetual success in vain, preparing always only the soil for unexpected good to sprout in. 
Throughout scripture, we see how evil labors in the midst of the church. Uh, the evil of the world threatens the church and, and seduces the church and, and sometimes seeps its way into the church. The psalmist said, Rescue me, O Lord, from, from evil doers who devise evil plans in their hearts and, and stir up war every day. Do not let my heart be drawn to what is evil. Do not let me eat its delicacies. This is the challenge of living as exiles in a world darkened by evil. We have to be on guard against the evil, which sometimes appears in, in these really seductive forms. The Apostle John said that we know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. When Jesus prayed for his disciples, he said, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, O Father, but that you protect them from the evil one. The Apostle Paul said to be very careful how you live, uh, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. He said to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may stand your ground. The Apostle Peter said to be alert and of sober mind, for your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We live in a world darkened by evil, and it's an evil that threatens the church. It, it worms its way into relationships. It, it deceives. It, it seduces. It entices people to, to arrogance and to compromise, and, and it immobilizes people with fear. It seeks to divide what God would bring together. It stirs up destructive thoughts based on preconceived assumptions. It, it, it twists the truth to create hostility and tension. And many of these things have come to the surface in the church, and they are all echoes of evil. As believers, we need to be on guard against evil in all its various forms, uh, Albert Einstein once said, the world is a dangerous place to live, not because of the people who are evil, but because of the people who don't do anything about it. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul urges us as believers to do something about the evil that threatens the church. Now, these verses, you may have noticed as, as I read them, they read like sort of this random grab bag of, of commands and instructions. And they, they, they're just sort of these, you know, loosely connected. Paul strings together a whole series of commands. And they just have no real obvious uh, connection or flow of thought. It's just, so it's, how do you preach on something like that unless you take them one command at a time, which would, you know, be here for a very, very long time. So, as I studied this text, I, I believe the text uh, is driven by really an, an underlying and, and a unifying theme. And uh, let me show you how I got there. So the text is framed by language of good and evil. Uh, Paul begins the text in verse 9 by saying this, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And Paul concludes the text in verse 21 with that same kind of good and evil language. He says in verse 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the, the, the framing of the text in that way is a literary device that, that, that Paul used and was very well familiar with. It's known as inclusio, and it serves to highlight what is the unifying theme of, of everything in between. And that unifying theme, then, is overcoming evil with good. 
So all of Paul's seemingly disconnected and disjointed and random grab bag of commands and instructions in these verses are are means by which we as believers overcome evil with good. That's the the, the framework with which we need to read these verses. Now, Paul understands that, that left to our own ways and devices, we will be overcome by evil. If, if, not for, if not for God's gracious provision and, and mercy and, and, and protective hand, we will be overcome by evil. This was true of the Christians in Rome, living at the center of the Roman Empire, where, where worldly power and evil reigned supreme. And it's still true of us today, living as exiles in an increasingly evil and God-defying culture. Paul's goal in the giving of these instructions is not simply that we become a kinder and a nicer church. His goal is that we conquer evil. We, we, we need to, that's what's at stake. That's, that's the, 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 the weight with which we need to read these verses. I, I think John Bloom, dying God, captured it well when he said that these words of Paul came stained with the blood and tears of spiritual trench warfare. Paul was telling the precious saints in this church how to stay alive in an evil world. For if churches don't overcome evil with good, they will not survive. And so as we live out our discipleship, and again, at this stage in Romans, Paul has for all these chapters laid out God's mercy and drawing us into a saving embrace, what God has done for us. And now he begins to, to tell us, well, how do we live that out? How do we live in response to what God has done for us in view of his great mercy? And as we live out our discipleship, we're not simply aiming at a more pleasant existence together. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. We are building resilience against the flaming darts of the enemy. We are conquering the evil that wants to conquer us. And it's with that understanding that we then turn our attention to these instructions of Paul in our text. As I uh, looked at it this, this, and studied it this past week, I, I think we can categorize Paul's instructions under three main headings. Uh, uh, some do it under two uh, love within the church and love outside of the church. I, I see a little different structure as I look at the text. So I think we can, his instructions fall under three main headings, love, zeal, and peace. And so by putting these qualities into practice, loving one another and living zealously for the kingdom and living at peace with each other, by putting those qualities into practice, Paul says we can be overcoming evil with good. So we're going to walk through those, those three main headings and, and all the, the sort of the the commands underneath them uh, this morning. So first, Paul says we can overcome evil with good by loving one another. Uh, Like I mentioned, Paul begins this section with a statement on love. He says, love must be sincere. And, and the word love here is the highest form of love. It's, it's the word agape, that, that, that self-giving, sacrificial love that Paul has only used up to this point in Romans to describe the, the love of, of, of God, the self-giving love of God for us. And now he says, oh, we must love one another. And Paul follows this, command, this statement with a command then to love one another. He says in verse 10, be devoted to one another. Love, that the word love there is not agape, it's a different word. Together with the word devoted, the, the language is that of uh, language that was typically used in the context of family relationships. It's language of intimate uh, fellowship and, and, and fierce devotion to the good of others. 
And then Paul goes on to spell out what, this, what, what does this love for one another look like? And that's what all, a whole bunch of these commands in verses 9 through 16 are commands that tell us in concrete ways how to love one another well. And what we see in all of these commands is, is really an emptying of self, a, a giving of self for the sake of others. So let's just walk through some of them together. Paul says, honor one another above yourselves. And the expression in Greek has a sense of, of one-upmanship. We are to outdo one another in showing honor. And, and what a fitting instruction that, that is for a church like ours that is dealing with, with polarizing issues. I mean, imagine how, how, how fruitful and, and how unifying and how beautiful it will be if, if we could walk together through difficult issues trying to outdo one another in showing honor. To honor one another is to show mutual respect, to, to guard one another's dignity and reputation. It means that we defend each other. We, we consider the needs of others above our own. We, we put them first instead of trying to get our own way and make sure that our voice and our opinion is heard. We assume the best of fellow believers instead of assuming the worst. We don't allow preconceived assumptions to color our opinion of them. And if someone says something insulting or degrading or cynical or destructive against a fellow believer, we, we stand up for them instead of joining in. We protect their reputation. We don't allow others to speak ill of those whom Christ has made his treasured possession. Paul goes on to say, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And when Paul says to practice hospitality, the word in Greek means literally, it's a strong word that means literally to pursue or, or to chase, to chase hospitality. And so we, we, we don't just show hospitality if the opportunity presents itself, that if somebody happens to come knocking on our doors, I guess we'll, I guess we'll invite them in. And that we've, we've, done our, we've done our due diligence. That's our hospitality for, for the month. No, we are to actively pursue it. We, we give ourselves on behalf of others. When, when someone is in need, we help them, even though it costs us. We, we welcome fellow believers into our homes. We actively pursue it, as some of you do so incredibly well. We break bread together, and we serve them. And this, not, this is not just a social thing to do. It is a concrete way that we live out Paul's command to love one another and so overcome evil with good. Paul goes on to say, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now here's where Paul's command to love goes a little bit deeper and it gets a little bit costlier, doesn't it? We, we don't just love those who love us in return. We, we don't just empty ourselves on behalf of, of the lovely and the likable. We, we do good to those who, who hurt us and speak ill of us and, and oppose us. We return kindness for insults and, and gentleness for anger. Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn those who mourn. We, we love others by entering into their joys and, and, and their sorrows and their pains. And so we, we get to know them. We build relationships with them. We don't just settle for casual conversations and, and surface encounters on a Sunday morning. 
We, we care so deeply about them that we, that we genuinely and authentically weep when they weep and, and rejoice when they rejoice. And, and this is why discipleship groups are so vitally important because it's, it's in small groups with fellow believers that we can actually enter into each other's lives in, in meaningful and authentic ways and form such deep bonds that, we, that we, it becomes natural to rejoice when they rejoice and to weep when they weep. Paul goes on to say, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And when Paul says to live in harmony with one another, the expression in Greek uh, means literally to, to think the same things toward one another. I guess that's an important way to put it, to think the same things toward one another. As believers, we are to be, in other words, of the same mind. This does not mean that we have to agree on every issue. We're not going to agree. <laughs> We're not going to agree on every issue. We're not going to see eye to eye on every matter in life. What it does mean is that as believers, Christ has conquered our hearts and, and, and taken captive our minds so that we can, each, of us, each of us can say with Paul that it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And, and if it's Christ living in me, and if Christ is living in all of us, then, then if that same Christ is living in each of us, we ought to recognize that, that, that we each share the same core convictions and paradigms. That we all see things through the same kingdom lens. And, and there's going to be things that we will have to correct each other on, and, and, and we'll wander and go astray and have to be reined back in. But, but we... In general, for the most part, we, we see things through the same kingdom lens. We are free then to disagree with each other on all kinds of non-essential issues in life, but we can and must live in harmony with one another because we recognize that underneath the superficial differences and disagreements, there is a deep and abiding unity in Christ. And Paul says the same thing in a little different way in Philippians 2 when he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, there's that, that unity. If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. By having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And so to live in harmony with one another is to let our unity in Christ be the defining quality of our fellowship. Again, as long as it's true unity uh, you know, grounded in, the, in the, the, the truths of Scripture. It is to understand that underneath our differences, there is a deep and abiding unity for those who are true believers. We are one in Christ Jesus. We've been purchased by the same precious blood and now serve the same king and are citizens of the same kingdom. To love one another is to live in harmony together. So these are all concrete ways that we put into practice Paul's command to love. And it takes, if you, you know, if, you, if we take these, these commands and instructions to heart, it takes humility, it, it, takes, it takes courage, and it takes sacrifice. We die to ourselves for the sake of others. We, we lower ourselves to lift them up. We give and we serve and then we listen and we invest. The Apostle Peter said, above all things, keep loving, keep on loving one another earnestly. And Jesus himself 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this is the first way, and I would say the, the most important way and the way we're going to spend the most time on. The first way that we overcome evil with good by loving one another. May we strive to be a loving one another church. The second way that uh, we overcome evil with good is through zeal. Paul says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now, when Paul says to, uh, not to be lacking in zeal, that Greek word lacking means literally lazy or slothful. So do not be slothful in your zeal. We, we cannot overcome evil with good if we are spiritually slothful. This, this was the problem of the, of the church in Laodicea, if you remember from Jesus' words in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, because you are slothful, complacent, uh, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And like the Laodiceans, we are so prone to slothfulness in our, in our atmosphere of abundance. We, we, we forget our need of God. It is so, it is so easy for us to, you know, just to, 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 to gravitate towards that self-sufficient self-satisfaction and to forget how needy we stand before the throne of God. We grow complacent and lukewarm in our walk with him. And so Paul urges us to fan into flame our spiritual state. He's never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Paul is calling us here to, to serve the Lord, to serve the kingdom with, with eagerness and, and with passion. You know, Pastor Ben uh, talked last week about, about spiritual gifts and about using our spiritual gifts. And now Paul calls us to, to use our gifts with, with zeal and, and with spiritual fervor. And the word fervor is, again, one of those, those, those vivid, great words in Greek. Um, and it really has, has uh, connotations of, of, of burning or fire, to, to boil, to seethe, to burn, or to glow. And so we are to cultivate within us a burning desire to serve Christ in his kingdom. And oh, would that be the case, again, for, for Covenant Church, that we'd be a body that is filled with people who have a burning desire to serve and to glorify Christ through their service. That's a message that we as a church need to hear and take to heart. I do believe that we are a vibrant church, but how much more vibrant would we be if more people had a burning desire to serve? The race car driver, Mario Andretti, was once asked, well, what is it that makes a great race car driver? And, and he said, well, it's all, the, you know, all the, the usual typical things that you would think of. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, skill and it's precision, it's courage, it's reflexes, it's strategy, it's all those things. But then he added this. He said, but the thing that, that really separates a, a great race car driver from the rest, the thing that really makes a great race car driver is burning desire. 
He said, when you have a burning desire to do something, then you give your all to do it, and you're not distracted by fear or risk or anything else. And does that not apply to the kingdom? That's what Paul is talking about in our spiritual lives. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. We, we are to cultivate a burning desire to serve. And that, and that burning desire will dispel whatever fears we may have, whatever hesitations we may have over the roots that come with serving. We overcome evil with good through zeal in our walk with God. That the final way that Paul says in this text that we overcome evil with good is, is through peace. We strive to live as peacemakers with others. And here, uh, Paul seems to go beyond the, the, the bounds of, of just the church walls and, and even extends to those outside of it, but certainly applies within as well. Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not seek revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Well, well now here we find you know, some of the most challenging words in, in all of Scripture if we're honest with ourselves, because it is our natural impulse to repay evil for evil. And not just in these, you know, these big, grandiose kinds of ways, but in the, in the little things, a, a harsh word spoken, and we return a harsh word for a harsh word. A, you know, a, a slight wound, then we, we, we give a little slight wound back. Our conditioned reflex is to strike back when we are struck. And so when we are wronged, we want to get even. If someone lashes out at us, we lash back at them. If someone spouts an offensive opinion, we, we hold it against them. Instead of working it out with, with, with humility and, and, and listening and care, we, we let it fester and it turns to bitterness and we speak ill of them to others. But Paul commands us to walk the path of self-restraint. He calls us to a, it's really a radically Christ-like way to live. He calls us to repay evil with good. I think we see an example of this call. We see many throughout scripture, but one, I think, clear example of this call to repay evil with good in the story of uh, King Saul and David. If you remember the story, Saul had become intensely jealous of David and saw David as a threat to his throne, and, and so he was trying to kill him. And, and multiple times, uh, he had tried to take his life, and David had escaped. Though, and, and he was doing this, though David had done nothing wrong. Just, just, he was just, just filled with jealous uh, hatred and anger and trying to, to, to kill David. And, and time after time, David escapes. And at one point, David finds himself in, in a cave in the desert of En Gedi. And Saul pursuing him with an army of 3,000 men. And Saul enters in the cave where Dave was, but he didn't know that David was there. And David's companions said to him, hey, finally, this is it. This is the day. God has given your enemy into your hands. God, you know, just as he said, you know, go, go take care of him. God is giving this to you. What a, what a gift. Go, go and do it. But David would not repay evil for evil. If you remember the story, he, he would kill the king who was trying to kill him. Instead, he, he went up to Saul and without Saul knowing, and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. 
And then when Saul left the cave, David called out to him, and this is what he said. He said, my Lord, the king, this day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but but I spared you. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Now notice now notice how, how David forsakes that impulse to revenge and how he, he leaves it in God's hands. He, he, he lives out what, what Paul has said and what the Old Testament has said, that it, where God says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. He trusts in that. He does not, as, 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 as hard as it would be and as, as easy as it would be to, to take revenge into his own hands, he, he surrenders that and he trusts God with it. He chooses not to repay evil with evil. And, and we see the effect of his peacemaking in Saul's response. The narrator says that Saul wept aloud. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. May the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Unfortunately for, for Saul, as the story continues, that, that spirit of repentance didn't stick. It didn't last, and it was Saul's downfall. But in this moment, we see how, how David's act of peacemaking brought repentance and contrition. And Saul's response is an example then of what Paul means in verse 20 when he says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. What does that mean? That, you know, to heap burning coals on his head. And I believe, and, and most commentators uh, would, would uh, agree with this as well, that what Paul is saying is that you will heap burning pangs of shame that will lead to repentance. So when we do good to our enemies, when we return evil with good, as David did to Saul, we heap burning pangs of shame on them that may lead to their repentance, as it did in this case with Saul. And again, the only possible way to do that, the only possible way for us to surrender that impulse to revenge and, and to leave it in God's hands is, is if we trust him. Do we trust God enough? to let go of our own impulse to, to repay evil for evil, to let go of our own wrongs and our woundedness and to trust that God is going to do what is right. We surrender our own impulses and trust that God will work in the lives of those who have wronged us. And so we overcome evil with good by striving for peace. So these are the ways that, that Paul tells us to overcome evil with good. We love one another. We live zealously for the kingdom, and we live as peacemakers. And of course, all of these things find their deepest expression in Christ. It's Christ who emptied himself in love, dying on a cross for for hell-deserving sinners. It's Christ who lived so zealously for the kingdom that even on the night before he he was crucified, he was praying for those he redeemed. It's Christ who repaid evil with good and so brought peace to those who did not deserve it. And so the cross, the cross stands forever as the ultimate testimony to overcoming evil with good. The the spiritual forces of evil, uh, you know, did, did their level best to extinguish all of the good and the beauty that Christ came to accomplish at the cross. 
It was all unleashed there, trying to extinguish it. But Paul says that Christ disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross. What was meant to be the, their, their greatest effort to extinguish was instead the greatest display of triumph. And through his one all-sufficient act of self-giving sacrifice, he swallowed up evil with good. And so if we really want to know how to overcome evil with good in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes, in our church, in our churches, in our communities, if we really want to know how to overcome evil with good, we, we look to the cross. We, we live at the foot of the cross. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus and follow him in the way of love and zeal and peace. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord God, as we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer and response, I pray, oh, Lord, that you'd work within our hearts and stir within us, oh, Lord. Lead us to the cross that we may see anew what God has done for us in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ that we may be moved to see in our own hearts the ways that we are failing to love one another and growing slothful in our service so that we're not living zealously for the kingdom and the ways that we are not striving to be peacemakers, the ways that we are harboring bitterness and anger and resentment and putting fuel under the flames of conflict and tension and hostility. Oh, Lord, hear our prayers this morning. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the way that you have triumphed over evil at the cross. We praise you, O Lord, that at the cross you disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. O Lord, with that assurance, may we go to the cross again and again. May we fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and may we follow you in the way of loving one another and living zealously for your kingdom and striving to be peacemakers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.